You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hi, friends. Welcome to the July live podcast. I'm so happy to see you. This is hilarious. So I was recording the July live podcast in my membership, and then I realized I didn't have my mic on like 20 minutes in. So then I recorded the Q&A part with the mic and I got that part, but the first part didn't record at all. And it was like such good stuff about mindfulness and all the things. So I don't want to podcast by myself now. So I'm turning on Instagram and here we are. So the podcast that comes out in real life is going to have this po- this Instagram live part first, me apologizing for effing up my podcast in the first place. Like literally, I need my hand held sometimes, but it's been a very busy day. And this is the last thing of the day and it's hot out and like we can make mistakes. I did seven hours of podcast book promotion today. I was on three people's podcasts. I did two Instagram lives, three if you count this one. Um, I did a private group membership uh, thing. If you guys saw that, um, we talked about desire and we talked, I had a super busy day. We talked about desire and we talked about orgasm um, difficulties in the private membership today. So jump on over to the private membership. The coolest thing about the private membership is like, I just want you to come and get what you need. Like come for a month, eat all, just consume all the content, go get your brain changed and be done with it or stay for the fun or stay for three years and get your life completely changed over and over and over again. So there isn't any commitment to it. It's like there's a bunch of content in there and I do live group coaching um, and that's where my podcast, you know, the live monthly podcast recordings are going to happen now, except for the fact that I didn't record half of it. And now I'm here on Instagram because I don't like talking to myself alone. Like, like I listen to all these podcasters and I'm like, you just podcast looking at like maybe not even looking at your face. It's weird to me to just talk to myself. I either have to have like an audience or an Instagram live something going on. Point being group membership is doing great it's been open for a month we've got a couple dozen members already you guys are amazing and i already heard back from one person they're like loved it got everything i needed thanks bye and i'm like great awesome go love your life come in don't you know get what you need leave it's awesome Um, but i hope you stay because you get to hang out with me and you get to be a little more private than like you asking your instagram questions and trying to figure it out. So what I was talking to about in the non-recorded part of my podcast that I'm now recording is Lori Brado's book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. Um, This book's been around for a while. It's actually a pretty dense book. It's 233 pages. The link is in the show notes of the podcast. She is a researcher up at University of British Columbia, and it's an amazing book, not only for people who are well-versed in mindfulness and how it can help sex life, but for people who are like, what the hell is mindfulness? So think of how many people have actually paid attention to their thoughts and realized like they're not who you are. They're not real. They're, we, we don't even know. I can't cut open your brain and find your thoughts. Like researchers don't even know like why the brain makes thoughts. It's super awesome to think about this stuff. But like a lot of the things we think are just either put there by society or repetitive habitual things. A lot of ants are in there, automatic negative thoughts. I talked about that a lot in my book. 
but really women who are trained in mindfulness and to be aware of their body, to be aware of their thoughts and non, non-clingingly just let them go, right? Get back into the present moment. Turns out their sex life gets way better. So there's some pieces of Lori Brado's book I actually want to read to you. And I consider this training uh, for me because I'm reading my book for the audio version of it later this week, first, first week in, in August. So um, I'm going to read you some excerpts about the mindfulness because it's super awesome. She talks about, again, the history of the sexual desire cycle at Rosemary Bassan and how Bassan helped women to appreciate that their sexual desire did not need to be present before a sexual encounter, but could be cultivated during sexual activity. I literally talked about this like five times today on my multiple. There there was a lot of mindfulness going on in the podcast that I was doing today, which is awesome. I love that it's becoming more and more normal of a thing. Um, Did you know that unmarried American women in one survey were more likely to have problems with orgasm and sexual anxiety than were married women? The other thing where you see this is the hookup culture orgasmic inequality versus long-term relationship orgasmic inequality. Just to back up for folks in the back who don't know, orgasmic inequality is the concept that in a partnered relationship, one person might have more common uh, access to orgasms than the other person. They did this research looking at same-sex couples, heterosexual couples. Heterosexual couples had the largest discrepancy. So the heterosexual male had an orgasm about 98% of the time, and the heterosexual female had an orgasm around 50% of the time. If you look at same-sex male, you're getting right around, you know, mid-90s for both of them, uh, followed by same-sex lesbian couples. I can't remember, around 80, 80, 90% of the time, but equal between the partners. So you really see that desire discrepancy show up in heterosexual relationships with the female taking the the brunt of like hers is like a bonus extra points, but not equal to her male partner. If you take that and look at the hookup culture that's going on in colleges, the university, big consumption of alcohol in these cultures, right, which we know is um, related to sexual assaults, sexual, sexual, con, con, um, what's the word, coercions, and reg- regret of decisions, right? So educating our people on the role of alcohol in what happens to you sexually. Uh, and your ability to be in charge of that, right? But if you look at orgasmic inequality within the setting of hookup culture, you're going to find, again, 98% orgasm for the heterosexual male and about 4 to 7% orgasm for the, the heterosexual female. What we learn about this is women aren't getting, if you're using or- orgasm as a marker for pleasure, right? Or, you know, enjoyment is that this is really a culture set up for heterosexual men and the I just and I, I hear this I hear this from our young women there's this there's this one woman and she's like I just feel like you know I'm just a vagina I'm just a hole and like how sad how sad for for everybody so getting back to sex and mindfulness there's something about that committed relationship where the partner cares about your sexual pleasure and enjoyment um, but I, certainly I think that men have been socialized or, you know, female orgasms are hard, they're difficult, uh, women don't know how, you know, all this stuff of like, it's just another way of kind of like dismissing it. When we tell people that women are complicated and then you kind of do that hand wave thing, it's a way of really dismissing them and kind of changing the subject, moving on. So let's not call ourselves complicated in a bad way. So 
what is very important to figure out whether a woman will develop a sexual problem or not is her beliefs about sex. You guys, that's page 23, Laurie Brown's book. That's literally what my book in life is about. The brain is the biggest sex organ. So it turns out that whether you believe sex is important or not, and how strongly you hold on to some of the prevailing myths about age and sex, can predict whether you will develop a sexual concern or not. Research shows that women who believe that age diminishes sexual desire and sexual activity are twice as likely to experience low sexual desire as women who do not hold this belief. What's more, women who had lost hope about the future of their sexual relationship were two to three times as likely to experience sexual pain and low sexual desire as women who still felt hopeful about their relationships. Uh, amazing. Um, and then she goes on to say that there are no school-based sex ed programs in the country that discuss pleasure. I think we knew that. Pleasure is very important, you guys. We don't get taught that, but then we realize how important it is in maintaining a, a healthy sex life going forward. And figuring out like what your motivation for sex is because it's not always desire and she talks about that i love her she talks about spectatoring right this is what mindfulness helps you undo spectatoring is the role of you watching you watching your partner you watching yourself have sex you judging yourself you judging your body much more difficult to achieve orgasm when you have that going on. She talks about, have you ever found yourself focusing on whether you are responding in an air quotes acceptable way during a sexual encounter? Note that only you are defining what is acceptable versus unacceptable. Then you have experienced spectatoring. So it's just amazing. And they say like when people stop being intimate, then all aspects of their relationship, the intimacy goes away. And they did a, uh, they did a, a study on 90,000 men and women. And they said they miss non-sexual touching and physical affection even more than they miss any decline in sexual frequency. So don't forget the role of, of connecting with your partner throughout the day, not just with sexual activity. So there is, they did a, a study on testosterone. We talk a lot about testosterone and sexual desire. And so testosterone was found to improve women's sexual desire, but it did little to improve their sexual satisfaction or feelings of pleasure. I love it. Nor did it affect women's beliefs about sexuality. So I was talking about that, you know, also with somebody. It's like, don't just think a hormone is the answer. Because if you don't uncover like your beliefs, your limiting beliefs, your judgments, your spectatoring, all that stuff, you can get your hormone levels, you know, air quotes normal, and your, your sexual problem might not be better. Testosterone's for desire. Remember a chapter in my book is fuck desire because Rosemary Bassan, Lori Brado don't think that desire is actually a necessary component to have before you have good sex desire comes during desire comes after i think there's a great deal of people who desire for sex comes once they're done with sex they're like i'm so relaxed that was so good that was so awesome honey why don't i why don't we remember how good that is we should do that more often that's called desire after sex and i think that's actually quite a normal lived experience for people and they said, mood, sense of well-being, body image, self-esteem, and how a woman feels about her partner turned out to be far stronger predictions of her level of sexual desire than any single hormone. Truth. Preach. This is what it's about. And this is why, you know, when you look at the data of menopause and sexual function, it's going to be mixed data because 
it's not just about the hormones. It's about your body image and your relationships and you absorbing society saying older women can't be sexual and all that stuff. And they have data saying like women who don't replete their hormones can have just as great sex lives than women who are on hormone replacement therapy. So hormone replacement therapy, now known as menopause therapy, is not an end-all be-all to a great sex life. It it tends, if it tends to do anything, it tends to increase your desire only because your body feels so much better, right? So you don't have hot flashes, night sweats, anxiety, mood changes, you know, all of those things that decrease your desire just because your body's feeling ill. So one of the main reasons that hormones post-menopause help women's sexual function is because it just helps them in general feel better. Healthier bodies tend to have better functioning sexual function. So I love that. Let's see if there's anything else that Lori Brado. I basically like highlighted half of her book. Um, almost all women show an automatic physical reaction to erotica. We've just been trained that it's bad or, or we shouldn't be interested in it. Um, this fact surprises some women and learning to recognize their arousal to erotica can take time. Research consistently shows that women are typically unaware of their body's sexual responses or perceive them in a very muted way. Some women detect physical sensations but feel indifferent towards them. Many women with sexual difficulties may have negative feelings about being aroused or believe that their body is betraying them. Super important, you guys. What society tells us about sexual behaviors influences our ability to enjoy those sexual behaviors later in life. So dig into it. That, and that's what, you know, I've got some worksheets in the membership. I've got several questions in the book that's like, you got to dig under to be like, what are your thoughts? What are your beliefs? And then realize, you know, through mindfulness, you're paying attention to that. You can really let those go. You can change them. That's what a lot of coaching does. I got into coaching for sex because it's it's like the best thing to coach on because we think we're so like stuck and fixed in all of this stuff and we're really not. It's it's an amazing ability to see your own power. All right. The research shows that mindfulness-based groups significantly improve sexual desire, sexual arousal, orgasms, sexual satisfaction, and mood in women seeking treatment for low sexual desire. The women also experience markedly less distress about their low desire immediately after the program ends and feel, still feel that way when they're assessed half a year later. For some women, while their low desire has not changed with mindfulness treatment, they experience far less sex-related distress after it. So there's some women who identify with as low desire, but they're not bothered by it right? If you're not, I always tell a woman, I can't make a, a not bothered woman any happier. Like she's already pretty fine. All right. Let's see if I can find anything else to share with you guys. And then we'll just cut to the questions and answer part that I've already recorded on my good mic. Several large studies that have tracked women's sexual desire, behavior, moods, attitudes, and hormones over 20 years have found that women's belief about their sexuality outweigh the contribution of hormones to their level of sexual desire. For example, women who believe that they will continue to be sexually active with old age are more likely to have higher levels of sexual desire and behavior than women who do not believe this, regardless of their hormone status. That's what I just said. Thank you, Lori Brado. Yeah. Great news for the hormone, uh, you know, for the women who can't or don't want to be on hormones. You don't have to. You can still have a great sex life. So that's Better, uh, better Sex Through Mindfulness by Lori Brado. The link will be in the podcast show notes. I love you guys so much. Join me 
next for the question and answer. Other things I wanted to talk about. Let's do some questions and answers for a little bit. One thing I wanted to tell, talk to people about is blood in the urine because I see this a lot as a urologist and I think it stresses a lot of people out. And I just want to I ne like never talk about this and it's good for you guys to know because it's actually pretty common. Um, so blood in the urine is not defined based upon a dipstick or a, what they call a UA in clinic. That's like the little pH litmus test, right? It's actually defined by looking at urine under a microscope and seeing red blood cells. So urologists won't even consider you to have blood in the urine unless you've seen it yourself. That's called gross hematuria. Or if it's actually positive with a microscope greater than three red blood cells. Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because women like oh doctors check urine sometimes even when you're feeling fine there's no data that doctors need to do that like urine as a screening test is has actually they've studied that and they said it's like not wise to do because there's so many false positives right but if you look at the amount of women who have blood in the urine it's usually a small amount if you have gross blood in the urine like you're peeing clots or something like that like the chances are there's something legit wrong kidney stone bladder tumor kidney cancer some, something like that uh, urinary tract infection is a very common reason for gross hematuria so get that checked out microscopic blood in the urine your chance of being diagnosed with a cancer with microscopic blood in the urine is very low it's less than 5%. So over 95% of people who have a little bit of blood in the urine won't find anything. So why do we need to work you up? Certainly if you've ever smoked, certainly the older you are, you get more of a thorough workup than young people. Just the older you are, the more risk of cancer that you have. So, but even when we do so, it's not likely we're going to find something. And and I, I akin it to the colonoscopy when people are like, why do I have to get this done? My risk is low. And it's like, because when you have blood in your poop, we get a colonoscopy because we don't know who has the colon cancer. We just have to find those people, right? And so that's the same with blood in the urine is we don't know who's got the tumor. We just have to find the people. So you've got to work up everybody. But what that usually does, which is a blessing, is we don't find cancer in a lot of people. So then we say, well, what's happening? Why do we have blood in the urine? And a lot of the time I say, it's a doctor's job, not always to tell you why it's happening, but to tell you why it's not happening. And in this case, it's not a kidney stone. It's not a tumor. That's reassuring. But what a lot of people don't know, and this is where I'm going with this freaking point, is that atrophic vaginitis, uh, general urinary syndrome of menopause, that the kind of atrophic irritated skin, you can get urethral prolapse where the lining of the urethra is kind of popping out a little bit. You can get blood when you wipe more frequently when you have that kind of tissue that's just very sensitive and irritated, right? So that's a big reason why women will pee in a cup when they have no symptoms and then the doctor will send it out and say you've got blood in your urine. Now this is the tricky thing about medicine is that it's a diagnosis of exclusion. I still have to do the workup and tell you you don't have cancer before I can be like you're probably that way and I'll, I'll ask a lot of women I'm like are you on vaginal estrogen because the skin gets so much healthier it decreases urethral prolapse and I have not seen a study but my hunch is if you have a whole bunch of women with microhematuria and then you put them on vaginal estrogen and you were to recheck their urine compared to people you didn't put on vaginal estrogen, you're going to see that microscopic hematuria decrease because you're treating healthy skin. And a lot of times when women pee in a cup, 
we call it a clean catch, but it's still really the urine touches the vulva, right? So if there's inflammation there, you might see white blood cells. If there's, you know, irritation or sensitive skin, you might see some red blood cells. You still need to work up. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's very reassuring to say like, where'd it come from? Why is it? And it's like, it might just because, you know, you're not on estrogen postmenopausal and the skin, the skin's a little bit irritated or thinned or things like that. So there's my, there's my microhematuria TED talk for you. All right, let's try to answer some questions. So somebody says, my reason for contacting you is I had invasive lobular carcinoma last year. I was incredibly lucky. I caught it with a self-exam. They had a bilateral mastectomy and it says, um, you, I met a wonderful man. Relationship did not become sexual until after my recovery. I've been having an issue getting sexually aroused and having an orgasm. So let's see. I've been listening to your podcast and I'm on hormone. I'm on hormone replacement therapy. Okay. I've talked to my oncologist about these effects, but he said they are not related. I disagree. From your podcast, I think I understand it's from loss of estrogen. I'm confused because you just said you are on hormone replacement therapy. Okay, so what we know is, and I want to remember to tell everybody, I always tell people at the beginning, but now I've got my good mic on. Everything I say in podcast and book form is not individual medical advice. Uh, It's entertainment and education purposes only. Um, Please see your own doctor for all this. But going back to breast cancer. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has a position paper saying vaginal estrogen is fine if you've been treated for breast cancer. There's no increased risk of, of recurrence, and that is becoming more and more commonly known. The big question, which maybe we'll answer in my lifetime, I don't know, is the controversy on post-breast cancer diagnosis being able to take systemic hormones. And people have very strong opinions about that. What's very interesting, and I am not a researcher, but what's very interesting is prostate cancer. One of my gifts is I treat men as well as women, so I get to see how we treat the men. Prostate cancer, taking testosterone after was a huge no-no. You're going to make the cancer come back. You're going to feed it. You know, can't do that. Never can do it. You've got these miserable guys with really low testosterone. Maybe not even low testosterone from the cancer treatment. Just they had their cancer treated and they happen to have low testosterone. And the pendulum is swinging. Like even compared to about five years ago when it was still a big no-no. Some guys, they started doing it just in clinical trials. So that's probably where breast cancer is going to go. Just in clinical trials where you basically like sign your life away and you're like, I want the benefits of these hormones. I understand there's a risk of recurrence. But the pendulum is swung with prostate cancer where some men, and it's usually, don't quote me, but like you've been cancer free for five years. It was low grade. It wasn't metastatic. Like you have to meet these criteria to be then allowed to go back on testosterone and feel a lot better. A lot of these men really were suffering from symptoms of low testosterone. So I think it's a good sign that, you know, we usually let the men go first. We're very patriarchal and protective of women. We don't want to hurt even one woman by doing something to them. So we just make all these other women suffer. Like we see that over and over and over again in women. Like, well, we don't want to hurt anybody. It's like, well, you're hurting them by not helping them out, right? Um, So certainly vaginal estrogen is fine. You might even consider vaginal estrogen plus a testosterone uh, vaginal cream if you're not allowed to be on hormone replacement therapy. Um, So lubrication as well, right? And then working on, what did you say your problem is? I don't see that you have pain as far as a problem. 
your issues getting sexually aroused and having an orgasm. Yeah. So I would, tr I would try different things, um, different lubes. Some people think the CBD, CBD type lubes are great for arousal. Scream cream is a um, compounded drug, different formulations, but can involve uh, sildenafil, which is a generic Viagra, um, arginine, uh, a little peppermint oil for a little bit of, you know, sensation stuff going on. You get it compounded. Um, kind of, it's kind of technical stuff, like mostly sex, sex med people know about it. I'm not sure all primary care doctors know about it, but it can really help with arousal, bringing in blood flow. And I think the other thing it does is like redirect your awareness, like, oh, something's going on in the vulva. Let's pay attention down there. So I would consider either, you know, playing around with things like that, playing around with increased stimulation to the clitoris, the air suction devices, um, air pulsation for the clitoris are amazing and actually pretty intense. Uh, they're not for everybody, but finding out a different way to say like, what does my body need now? And coming from it from like a curiosity way and a willing to try things way and not a like, I'm broken. This is frustrating. It's never going to work. Going back to like the, how our mind interacts with our sex life is very, very important for that. So I hope that that is helpful. Next question. My mom is 79 and I'm curious if she's too old to take estrogen. She's one of those women who stopped hormone replacement therapy 20 years ago. Her and 70 to 80% of all the other women on it in America. There are a few that, that made it through. They're, they're the stubborn ones who, you know, they literally, they're eight in their 80s now. And I see them and they're like, yeah, you're going to pry this out of my cold dead hands, right? So some people didn't stop when the Women's Health Initiative came through. So good on them. They're still doing great. I meet a lot of them. Um, okay. So that's, that's your mom, 79. She stopped hormone therapy 20 years ago. She has osteoporosis and is struggling for years. Um, is, is there any advice I can share? Yeah. So most people are not going to start a 79 year old female on systemic estrogen. She's missed her boat. Really. They say within the safest window I quote Rachel Rubin, if you play with hormones, you can get hormone side effects. The safest window to start systemic, and remember, let's go back, systemic is full body, vaginal estrogen is vaginal. Systemic can be topical. Vaginal can be topical. So this can be very confusing for people. But if you follow me long enough, like you know what I'm talking about. So systemic full body hormone therapy is its safest if you start it within 10 years of menopause, which is probably what your mom did. The problem is she's been off of it for 20 years and to restart can can cause increased risk of stroke and cardiovascular uh, things like um, clot or MI because you're basically you've developed 20 years of, you know, blood vessels that have lived without estrogen and now you're throwing estrogen on it kind of destabilizes the plaques. So no, sorry. And the other thing is osteoporosis, right? So so estrogen is not FDA approved for treatment of osteoporosis, but it is FDA approved for prevention of osteoporosis. And um, I think that's a reason that, you know, some women go in and they struggle still with primary care in trying to get them on hormones is like, well, I feel fine, but my osteoporosis risk is really high. I'm a thin white female. My mom has osteoporosis. I'd like to be as bone protective as I can. Estrogen's so good for your bones. All right. Hope that helped. Sorry your mom can't go on hormones. Sorry your doctors took it off 20 years ago. Sorry we did a massive disservice to all of the women in the world by publishing the freaking 
women's health initiative and not looking at the nuances and what it actually means. It's a billion dollar study. We spent a lot of money. We learned a lot. But one part is the media loved, loved scaring. We love scaring women, you guys, because we need to protect you. So we need to tell you how scary the world is. We can protect you. Um, And so we told you that estrogen causes breast cancer. And the truth of that study is estrogen actually decreases your risk of breast cancer. It was the estrogen progesterone arm that had an increase in diagnosis of breast cancer, but a decrease in mortality from breast cancer. And they think there's various reasons that that could be so. One of which is the placebo group was on estrogen earlier in their life. So that it was a artificially low placebo group as far as risk goes, in the estrogen progesterone arm. But do you think the media can explain that? They don't care. And it doesn't, you know how many people would like pay attention if they're like, hey, estrogen decreases your risk of breast cancer. That's not going to, that's not clickable, right? Estrogen causes breast cancer. That's clickable. And so that's what they did. Okay, here we go. I'm going to go talk to my doctor about hormone therapy. I've been having hot flashes so bad. It's awful. I'm wondering what exactly should I ask for? Um, Okay, so this person's in Canada. So I don't know Canada medicine. Um, names are different. Drugs are different. And, you know, I always struggle to, I can't serve the world. I mean, I could. I could quit my job and go learn everybody's drugs. But, like, I, I don't want to. You got to talk to your doctor. But here's the short short and quick. Um, for hot flashes, estrogen's great. If you have a uterus, you must take a progestin to protect the uterine lining from unopposed estrogen. You can do that with an IUD or you can do that with oral micronized progesterone, which is is in several studies uh, shown to not increase your risk of breast cancer. So that was not the progestin used in the Women's Health Initiative. Um, The micronized progesterone is air quotes bioidentical because people love that word. So it sounds great when I say it. Um, but it is a form that is different than the um, chemical composition that was in the Women's Health Initiative. So if you have a uterus, got to be on a progestin. If you don't, you can take an estrogen. Um, sex med people love estrogen patches or the femring um, or the creams because they don't have first pass metabolism. So they're also lower risk of blood clot and they don't increase sex hormone binding globulin, which is uh, better for uh, sex drive. You might have a lower lower sex drive if it hangs on to your testosterone if you take it orally. So if you want the absolute safest systemic estrogen, just pick an option, transdermal or transvaginal, called the femring, um, that isn't oral. So there are some studies that show uh, very low risk, if at all, risk of blood clots with uh, topical estrogen. So that's nice. That goes into the question of what risks do oral estrogen... Oh my God, literally the next question is what risks do oral estrogen have? That's funny. Um, Please see above question. (laughs) Uh, You can have uh, oral estrogen, um, increased risk of elevated triglycerides, increased risk of gallbladder disease, increased risk of it decreasing your libido compared to systemic. Um, Those are the oral. The, The oral estrogen is dirt cheap, you guys. Like all you guys paying buku dollars for compounded stuff... You don't need to do it. Patch estrogen, the um, generic patch twice a week estrogen patch is so teeny. It's like $33 for a month. It's dirt cheap. Remember, postmenopause lasts like 30 to 40 years. Like spread out the cash expenditure on this stuff. Thoughts on Premarin? 
Um, I'm most familiar with the vaginal Premarin. I know there's also an oral Premarin. Premarin stands for pregnant mare's urine. Um, some people have issues with us getting medications from animals, especially ones that are near and dear to our heart, like horses. Um, so that would be one reason not to. Um, it's just more expensive. The vaginal Premarin is way more expensive than the generic estradiol. So to me, that's a big reason not to use it. It's on formulary more than estradiol is for some insurances. That's like a nuanced thing. But I otherwise don't have any strong opinions about it. All right, you guys. Those are all. You guys are literally all hormones, hormones, hormones. You guys are so hungry about hormones. Um, I love you guys. I love you so much. I think that's all I wanted to talk to you about today. Hormones, mindfulness, turning my mic on 20 minutes into it, the book tour, the membership, um, me recording my book, audiobook soon. So stay tuned for that. Love you so much. And I'll talk to you next time. Thanks.